Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together, sweet worship, the brothers and sisters in the Lord. We thank you for your word. We ask now that it would minister to our hearts as we look what you did in the past to understand where it was all pointing, how it was all going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would just help us understand those truths, Lord. And we love you more when we leave here than when we came in. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start back in Leviticus chapter 23. As you remember, I did not get that finished a couple of weeks ago. Was I? I wasn't, I wasn't here last week, was I? Uh, we were moving, I think. I think Josh preached. But a couple of weeks ago, I was trying to get through these seven feasts um, in Leviticus 23, and I didn't quite make it. And so I want to finish uh, that last portion of chapter 23, and then we'll take a shot at 24. And I think you have notes out for that. Maybe you still have your notes from when I was in 23. But here we come to the sixth feast, and this is the day of atonement. Follow along as I read verse 26 through 32. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on exactly the 10th day of this, of the seventh month is the day of atonement, and it shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on behalf, on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual state throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest for you. And you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening. From evening to e- until evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Well, here we come to the tenth day of Tishri. Um, this was the nation, a time for the nation to gather in another holy convocation. Remember we talked about gathering and the importance that God desires his people to gather together. New Testament era is just the same. He loves his people to come together and commands us not to forsake that assembling of ourselves together. But this one was not a celebration like many of the others. In fact, as you see in the text, it is rather a day of humbling. Um, Some of the Translations may even use the word affliction. It was a day to humble your soul, to allow your soul to be afflicted, and to present offerings by fire to the Lord, the Bible says here. But we dealt with the Day of Atonement extensively in Leviticus chapter 16 as we looked at the sacrifices and the ceremony of it all. But here in this chapter, in verse 23, there's more of an emphasis on the behavior of of the individual Israelite here. And that's what uh, God focuses on here with Moses in his instruction to the nation. Notice that phrase, humbling or afflicting of the soul here. Well, many understood this to be an entire day of fasting. They would reject daily needs of things in order to get their mindset around a God who was holy and their sinful life and atonement that needed to be made for that. And so the day was for the Israelite to solemnly reflect on his life, on her sin, on on the situations of how they had lived their lives that previous year. 
And you'll notice it was another day of rest where no work was to be done. If any Israelite did not humble himself on this day or, or respect the Sabbath rest, the Bible says that person was to be cut off and even destroyed from among his people. And you notice that's a strong statement, isn't it? Strong statement of punishment for disobedience. And, and there's no other feast that speaks that way. This, this feast, this, uh, this gathering has a strong warning in it more than any of the other feast. And the strongest term is because God wanted his people to come to him in humble repentance. He didn't want it just to be another feast. This is a day of atonement. This is where the sins of the nation are transferred onto these innocent animals. One led in to die for them. One led away to show their sins are taken away. And he wanted them to take this serious. And so they were to cease from daily efforts. It was to be a unique day. And while the priest did all the hard work, making all the sacrifices and doing all that, the people were to rest. I thought that's interesting. You know, we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ while the chief priest, Jesus Christ, did all the hard work. Isn't that interesting? He did all the dying, the suffering, the bleeding. He did all of that while we rest in his finished work. And you can see that analogy in here. This affliction of the soul or humbling of the soul is an interesting term. It's the idea of withdrawing from earthly pleasures even. It was to help the worldly desires and the need of those desires and those desires that controlled them to set those things aside and concentrate and contemplate the guiltiness of sin before a holy God. They needed to God wanted them to see that he was a just God and sin deserves his wrath and that there was this innocent substitute. I mean, those of you who are really animal lover type people, I mean, just that animal, this unblemished, completely innocent animal dies for the sin of the nation. So this day of atonement was an important Day It reflected the great work of the Lord Jesus Christ coming as we learned when we studied it in chapter 16. But this was a temporary fix. We know that, right? It was temporary. It was done every year. And Hebrews talks about this year after year, this atonement was made because it was a shadow of something greater to come. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we examine that in chapter 16, we saw Jesus as that final lamb the Father transferring our sins onto Him. All the past, present, and future sins onto this final Lamb. And what a teaching that is. Just as sin on the Day of Atonement was to bring affliction to the Israel soul, Jesus Himself was greatly afflicted for us, wasn't He? I just couldn't help but put in my notes Isaiah 53, 3-5. He, Jesus has to be him. There's no other description. No one else can fill this description. Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men. Listen to this. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And that's what God was telling the nation to do, to be acquainted with grief on this day. Well, Christ was acquainted, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face. See, this was not a celebration feast. 
There was sorrow because something has to die in their place. The Bible goes on to say, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore himself and our sorrow he carried. There's real connection here, isn't this? As I studied this, I thought, Lord, this was not to be a happy day. This was a day of sorrow to recognize the weight of sin and how this animal had to be stricken for him. Well, Jesus, the final lamb, was smitten by God, wasn't he? And afflicted, the Bible says. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him And by his scourging, we are healed. What a statement, isn't that? So the Day of Atonement was a unique day. Out of all the feasts, this one was to be solemn. It was to be a day where they focused in on that. Well, the last feast, we begin in verse 33 through 34. It is the seventh feast. It is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, um, your Bible might say. Follow along as we read the rest of this chapter, 33 through 44. And again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth of this seventh month is the Feast of Booths for the seven days to the Lord. On the first day of it is a holy convocation, and you shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by by, by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly, and you shall do no laborious work. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim a holy convocations to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings and sacrifice and drink offerings. Each day matters only of its own day. Besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts, and besides all the votive and free will offerings you will give to the Lord. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land and have celebrated the feast of the Lord for seven days, a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. Now, on the first day, you shall take, yourself, take for yourself a foliage of beautiful trees and palm branches and brows of leafy trees and willow, willows from the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year, and it shall be a perpetual statue throughout your generations, and you shall celebrate it in the seventh month, and you shall live in booths for seven days, and all the native born in Israel shall live in in booths, so your generation may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God, so Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. So here on this last feast that's recorded here in Leviticus 23, it was on the 15th day of, again, this Tishri, this um, seventh month, this third festival of the fall began. Seven of all, but the third of the fall. Remember we talked about there was a break, there was a four-month break between the first four festivals and then these three festivals that were in the fall. But notice that on the first to the eighth day of this festival, it was to be a holy convocation. And each day was a day of rest. They were really to draw away from daily life for this whole festival. The sacrifices were held throughout the week. You saw that in there, the list of those things, and including burnt offerings and grain offerings and drink offerings and such. 
But this week also afforded an opportunity for the people to bring personal gifts, free will offerings, vows to the Lord. Uh, verse 38. The Jewish Talmud has notes about this feast that the Feast of Booths was, um, was a special in many ways. Um, it was a rejoicing of harvest that came in, but one of the things they often did in, in, a, in addition to what is in here is the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam and there draw out water in this golden pitcher and then, and then pour it into a silver bin as the worshipers sang collective songs from Psalms, I think about 113 to 118 were the Psalms they say. And this was to be a reminder how God provided and supplied water for the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Now, when you get to Jesus' life, we find that most likely this is what he is speaking about when he comes to, 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 comes to the feast in John chapter 7. Listen to John chapter 7, verse 37, 38. Now on the last day, now he's at this feast, the great day of feast. Most of the people believe he's now talking about this feast of tabernacles or booths here. Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty. So remember, this is a tradition they'd always done. They brought this water out, poured on it. It was a reminder that God had provided for them. This was a, the kind of conclusion to bring this whole feast together. He said, if anyone, isn't thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. See, they were looking back at what Moses did and all the things that happened there. Jesus takes the attention off of that that event of the past and brings it forward to himself and reminds them, if you drink of this water like he told the woman in John 4, you'll be thirsty again. But if you drink of me, he says that he who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so what a great reminder that all of that pointed towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, notice in verse 29, there is a great harvest going on. This was part of this feast. It was part of the celebration of this. And this was, uh, the, this was really the only feast where, where I could, as I studied this, where you saw celebration was commanded. <laughs> you will celebrate. <laughs> and it would have been an easy time to celebrate if you've ever been involved in the hard work of harvesting, getting the hay in the barn or, or getting in fruits and vegetables or whatever towards the end of that growing season. It's exhausting work, but when it's all there, there's nothing greater feeling than having the barns full. And so here God commands them to celebrate over the goodness and the provision of God. I love our harvest fest time we do. It's kind of hard to get everybody around here to kind of think that way, but um, harvest is such a great time of year. And and for us, we remember how God has provided great salvation through, for us through Jesus Christ. Now, this was very different than the feast of the pagan world. When you study their feast, it was full of drunkenness and immorality. Here, they were, have to have special days of rest. They were to give free will offerings. It was a really celebration of God and joy and family coming together. In the pagan world, it was nothing but debauchery. God did not want anything of that to do with his people. He wanted his, his nation to celebrate with pure joy what God had done. Deuteronomy 31 um, gives us a little more insight and tells us that um, every seven years on this feast, none of the other ones, on this feast, 
they read the entire law to the nation. It was a true celebration and a true remembrance of what God had done. Notice in verse 40 that the nation was to make these shelters, right? Notice they were to use these palm branches and foolish uh, foliage and, and boughs from other trees. And they were to live in these shelters this entire time at this festival. So this means they left their homes and built these little kind of tents out of, out of foliage. Well, this was to remind them that one time, at one time, they lived in Israel. And they lived in pretty difficult shelters probably there. And God was reminding them of the hardship that they once lived in and that he had promised to bring them into the promised land. And this feast actually was, is really commanded as they get into the land that they were to do this every year so they would not forget what God had done. Oh, short-term memory Christians are a problem, aren't they? What have you done for me lately, God? So God wants them to remember how he would provided for them. As time was on, historians tell us that the Jews loved this feast most of all. It was a time of camping out, a family experience. It was a time when the nation was walking with God. It was a time of great worship and joy, and they loved this final feast of the year. The Feast of Booths began and ended with rest. God commanded that. You see that in the text there. It was a time for celebration. It was a time for blessing God for the harvest. Time of refreshment. And it seemed, it seems that God intended for this feast to really bring the nation together. And I love this. If, you're, if, you, ever, if you spend a lot of time reading the Bible, God is constantly trying to bring his people together and joy what he has done. All the pagan cultures around them had no day like this. They did not have days of rest. They didn't have really a mandated vacation time. This was a mandated vacation for the nation of Israel. One of the things I think I made a comment on this a couple weeks ago was three times a year the men were to leave their homes, their wife and children, and they were to have a holy convocation together. Now, think about that. You're surrounded by your enemies. You've you got all kinds of enemies around you who know your pattern that three times a year on such and such week of a such and such month that you, all the men, leave the, the towns, leave their homes and go out into this wilderness and worship their God. What, what an opportunity to wipe them out, right? God protects those who obey him. And even when you think about this feast, you have all the families now coming together. They've left their homes, their fields, their crops, the things that they have to obey God and come together and celebrate. And God always protected them through that as long as they obeyed him. Isn't that interesting? God brings great protection to those who obey him. Now, that's certainly the important message of gathering in Hebrews 10. God charges us not to forsake our assembling of ourselves together. Because one of the things we do when we do that, we stimulate one another. Can you imagine being an Israelite from the tribe of Dan and you haven't seen your friend from the tribe of Judah? And you don't know how his crops went this year and the trials that he had, but you, you finally get together in this fall festival and there they are, your friends and your family that are even in your own tribes and other tribes. And they get together and they stimulate each other when they're walking with God to love this God of Israel who cared for them. The same is true today, brothers and sisters. 
when we fail to assemble, this is why it was so difficult during the beginning stages of COVID. Of course, our church only did, I think, five weeks. <laughs> we said that's enough of that. Um, uh, it, we, lacked, we lacked that stimulation that God wanted us to have. And so, as I begin to think about this from a New Testament perspective, I wrote some questions to myself and to you in here. I said, oh, how are we doing as a church? Do we set days aside for corporate worship in celebration of our God and Savior? Oh, well, yeah, we got Sunday, and, you know, a third of the church comes to Wednesday. But, but do we intentionally set periods of time to get away, to be with family, and in that time, recognize the goodness of God? Have we done that? Many times I've challenged men. I ask them, when, when's the last time you took your family on a vacation? Well, we work a lot. Kids are in school, all this stuff. Hey, you, you need to get away and be intentional about that time that you would spend time as a family with the Lord. It was fun when we vacationed and the boys were all home. Um, and often we'd be gone over a Sunday. We would pick a time, pick one of the boys to do the preaching. It was always fun because they... That was the rotation. They had a rotation to preach when dad was off. And uh, it was a joy to watch them study and prepare for that Sunday uh, to fellowship together. I think some of the sweetest times we've had as a family in growing in the Lord together were times away together, enjoying one another and being thankful for what God has done. Well, I think Riverbend does a fairly good job gathering the souls and proclaiming the glories of Christ and charging ourselves to be assembled. But, but, you know, we can always grow, right? Paul always says, uh, uh, what, excel still more. Have you been through soul care? Have you been through DTP? Have you been through those things that continue to bring us together so that we'll put our trust in God when times are difficult? We'll turn to chapter 24, and my goal is to move through this one fairly quickly. This is a little shorter chapter. But it is a chapter that reminds us that God is holy, and he has given orders of how people are to conduct themselves in the household of God. Well, that's the same thing he gives the New Testament. After, when you read First uh, Timothy chapter 3, you get into the qualifications of elders, pastors, overseers. And there it charges that man who desires the ministry to desire the work of the ministry. And then it gives a very detailed list of Areas that we need to be consistently qualified in those areas. And he goes through elders, and then he turns his attention to deacons. And when he gets all done with that, he says this, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, right? But in case I'm delayed, now listen to this, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. See, God has always given instructions of how man is to conduct themselves in the household of God. Today's church has gotten away from that, hasn't it? Church is now about the individual. We try to please the person in the pew versus please the, pers- the person of Jesus Christ. And so uh, I like this because he goes back and he starts to deal with a few things of how things should be done. Number one, look at the care of the tabernacle before the Lord. Verses 1 through 9, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil, from beaten olives for the light to make the lamp burn continually. 
Outside the veil of the, tes- of the testimony in the tent of meetings, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord continually, and it shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And you shall keep the lamp in order, uh, in order on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Then you shall take fine flour and make twelve cakes with it, and two tenths of the ephah shall be in each cake. And you shall set them into two rows, six to a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put pure incense on the row, each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day it shall set it in order before the Lord continually in an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the Lord's offering by fire in his portion. Well, in verses 1 through 4, God gives Moses instruction concerning the care of of the lampstand here, the burning of the lampstand. Um, This doesn't seem to be the role of the public priest, the one that is out, but more of a priest who serves behind the scenes, it seems. And notice that the people of Israel were to bring the oil. I thought that was interesting. He, he wanted the involvement of the nation. And it was costly. This was not just cheap oil. This was pure oil. This was oil strained again and again and again to get to a purity with certain types of olives that they would have once they moved into the promised land. And it was to be given to the Lord by the people. In Exodus 25, there was instructions given on the design and the purpose of of the solid golden lampstand. But this lampstand was the only source, think about this, is the only source of light within the tabernacle. So the lamp had to be constantly cared for, right? And, and notice it had to have this pure supply of oil, and that means its wicks had to be trimmed, and it was to burn continually. But look at verse 3. We're reminded of the positioning of the lampstand. I thought this was interesting. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meaning. Well, the testimony, that would be the Ten Commandments, right? And we know where they're at. They're in the Ark of the Covenant. So that place is in the holy, most holy place. So this is talking about the lampstand that is in the holy place, this side of the veil, right? Not the most holy place. And notice every evening and morning, they were to make sure this lampstand was taken care of. Um, and, and, and many thought, as I read on this, many thought that it was allowed to go out during the day. I, I'm not sure that's true, but I saw several people write on that. But it was always to be lit and cared for throughout the nighttime. And, and to me, I, just, I guess what I thought about is that the Lord never wants darkness in his temple. And he wants light because he is the light, right? And so this pure golden lampstand was always an enduring image to the nation of Israel. And it was an important part of their life. It reflected the glory of God. It's interesting, when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, one of the things they did on their big arch that went into Rome is they chiseled out a picture of the Jewish lampstand. Because it really represented the Jews in a lot of ways. And it showed their conquering and their victory over them. Um, And so that really marked that this was a very important thing to the Jews, and when they fell, um, it was used as a mark of victory over them. But in Exodus 25, we learned that the lampstand 
was a continual light that points towards the Messiah, wasn't it? It was never to go out, right? And so that's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. His light never goes out. You'll never extinguish the Lord Jesus Christ. They tried, right? They tried many times. Even before his death on the cross, they tried to stone him and attack him and throw him off cliffs. But they cannot extinguish him and they cannot extinguish him today. Jesus shows up at most likely what we think in John chapter 8 at the Feast of Booths. And he shows up at the end of it again. And in John 8... Uh, 12, where they're celebrating this feast of lights, this became part of that festival um, in the time of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You keep thinking about this lampstand and in and, and this Old Testament day, though, that's a shadow of something to come. I am the light of the world. As he stands and proclaims this in John 8:12. He says, he who follows me will not walk in darkness. He's painting a very clear picture between purity and sinfulness. He was pure. He's the light. And darkness is sin and, and things that are against God that have his judgment. And then he says, if you'll follow me, you'll have the light of life. So Jesus, this is certainly the, the fulfillment of that lampstand, isn't he? Um, the pure olive, probably, uh, we would say as we think about this in a New Testament way, really points to the work of the, of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit is the fuel that burns the brightness and glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's the fuel that helps us and dwells us to, to see Jesus. He puts the spotlight on the authority of Christ in his word. That's what the Spirit does. And so Christ becomes the center of all scriptures with the Holy Spirit burning bright, spotlighting his ministry. So what a beautiful example of those. Notice verses 5 through 9 that we come to the care of the tabernacle, uh, in, the, in the tabernacle, the showbread here. Again, Exodus 25 and 26, we looked at the details, how that was built and laden with gold and how it was arranged in uh, an orderly way on this showbread. But this table, remember, stood opposite in the most holy place of the, of the, of the lampstands. The lampstands were over here, the, the showbread was over here, and that light shone across to that bread. Now, the table there represents several things in the holy place. This 12 tribes of of always being in the presence of the Lord. He wanted them to be reminded of that, that he was there with them. He would, if they would obey him, he would remain in their presence, and he would be their God. The term showbread, um, we get the idea of a bread, bread of face, meaning that's that strong presence of God there. And this taught the nation that the bread was associated with the presence of God. But notice that they were to eat this bread. They were to have this. Remember, we spoke about this greatly, but they were to partake in this fellowship with God. Jesus, the bread of life, right? He brings us together. We fellowship with God. We get to God through him. This, this was a reminder that God loved these nation and these 12 tribes, and he wanted to be in amongst them in fellowship with them. These 12 cakes displayed God's relationship with the entire the entire nation, not just the Levitical tribe, but with all of the tribes of Israel. Notice in verse 8, he said, Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. Well, not only did God desire the, the, 
relationship with his people, but he wanted it done his way, properly, right? So people were to come to God his way, not their own way. Again, something that is, seems to be falling apart in the church in America, like it has around the world, that man wants to come his way, wants to be accepted his way. God wanted things in order. This is the way you come to me. This is the way I dwell among you, and God is holy and always right. But ultimately, this all pointed to the personal work of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came as the bread of life. We remember that. I was thinking about this this afternoon as I was finishing this up, and I thought, you know, the resurrection brought about the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Remember, they're to rest in this and remember the Sabbath. The resurrection brought about the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And now, because of that, every day is a Sabbath rest. In fact, the early church changed their Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday because that resurrection fulfilled all of that. And they wanted to mark the remembrance of a resurrected Christ who had victory over our sin, Satan, and death. And so uh, it really points to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus was that bread of life, one we are absolutely satisfied in. And, and that's, that's why we're able to rest every day. We're satisfied in Jesus Christ. We don't look for some other spiritual nourishment. We're not looking for some other thing. We have Christ in his word. You want something else? Do you think there's something better than Christ and his word? Oh, we, we find total satisfaction as Christians in that. And we don't look for another. Secondly, we find the case of an Egyptian blasphemer here and the law that is applied. Look at verses 10 through 12 first. We'll work our way down through this. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel and the Israelite woman's son and the man of Israel struggled with each other. And the man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. And the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed so that they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shalomite and the daughter of Dupree, the, of the tribe of Dan. Well, here we have a narrative which is very unusual in the book of uh, Leviticus. There's a narrative that's kind of dropped right into this story. But this narrative has a purpose, and it's given to show the law of Moses, how it was to be applied immediately. Now, undoubtedly, there was all kinds of sinful problems going on in the nation, and Moses and the elders were constantly making judgment on those things. But clearly, God wanted to use this as an example. And so this narrative is dropped right into the middle of these very didactic passages in Leviticus. Now, clearly, this man is half Egyptian and half Hebrew. And he would have been part of that, what the Bible called a mixed multitude that left Egypt uh, with him in Exodus chapter 12. Now, this is interesting. The Bible says that his father was an Egyptian. Um, and most likely, um, he would have been looked upon as an Egyptian. Isn't it interesting that the wife was an Israelite and the father followed the Israelites out of Egypt? So there's, there's an interesting power of God to persuade a very male-dominant world there in that time to follow the wife's God 
which would have been the true and living God up out of Egypt. But here, nevertheless, we don't know much about this couple, but all we know is they have a son that is half Egyptian and half Israelite. And as you can see, the man breaks the law of God, right? He blasphemes and curses the name of the Lord. Now, blaspheming is, a, is really an attack on someone, right? Uh, especially God. It's done through uncontrolled use of words, right? Today, we would call it something like verbal abuse, but direct it towards God, right? Maybe that would be a term of blaspheming. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the third command said, You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Exodus 22, 28, you shall not curse God. Well, in the ancient days, many of, many of the names of a person was you know, directed towards who they are, right? It was intimately involved with their character. But in this case, this blaspheme, this attack was against God and really was a rejection of who God is. The biblical historians, as I read on this, said that it was common for Egyptians to curse using the gods of Egypt's name. And they would often do this when their dead gods did not give them what they wanted. And so they would curse using these Egyptian gods' names. It was a very common theme. So here we find this man who is half Egyptian, half Israeli. He now uses God's name, the living God's name, in vain as he curses whatever situation is going on between him and this other person. But clearly, the root of this man's sin was that he considered God of Israel to be like the gods of Egypt. He de-elevated God down to the dead gods of Egypt. And this becomes an example that God wants the nation to see. Notice in verse 12 that they put the man in custody. And it's interesting, notice they leave the judgment of this man, it says, to the mind of the Lord. Well, how does God want us to handle this situation? Well, in, the, in God's word, the foreigner has always been cared for. You can see that throughout Leviticus, throughout Exodus, and, and further on. The foreigner who was among the nation of Israel, God always provided for them. They were to provide for them among them. But God had really not given a specific law given to deal with the foreigners when they break one of God's law. And so now the nation of Israel, through Moses, was to seek God's guidance how to deal with this. So let's see what they do, verse 13 and 14. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and then let all the congregation stone him. So clearly Moses says, grab the offender, bring him out of custody, and let's take him outside the camp. He's brought outside the camp because that's what you do with the unclean things, whether that is refuge left from sacrifices or an unclean person, they're brought outside the camp. Then this principle of witnesses starts to play in. We see more of this in Deuteronomy chapter 17. We'll get to that in time. But these two witnesses there were to publicly lay hands on the accused, thereby assuring the nation that they are a testimony, they are a testament to what this man did and his guilt. This assured that the guilty man also knew his accusers. He was not being accused by someone in secret. See, God had a way of doing things that was right. Now they laid their hands on him. Notice this. 
And most likely they laid their hands upon his head. And they went on public record that they heard this person blaspheme. It was not hearsay. They heard this. And they are now demanding the justice for God to be glorified and his name cleared. Notice it says, let all the congregation stone him. Well, stones were really plentiful, and they still are in the Middle East. <laughs> but more importantly, this was a form of education, uh, excuse me, execution uh, that educated the nation that the sin of one affects the entire community. They're going to see that later when sin within the nation of men who steal things and when told, God told not to, particularly Achan, how it affects the nation and their family. But here, God wants them to realize that sin within the camp affects all the community, and so all the community is involved with this. J. Campbell Morgan, writing on this passage, said this, Therefore the law was applied to a foreigner now. See, they remember, they were wondering, how, what does God want us to do with this? And it was a principle of justice and mercy in, 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 to the whole nation. Campbell goes, uh, Morgan goes on to say its first, emphasizes is a, first emphasis is upon the fact that those who enter the kingdom of God and enjoy its privileges must be governed by its law. And to enter that kingdom is to renounce your own lordships of everything else and to accept God's law. And this one had rejected it even though he was a, form, he was a foreigner. Look at 15 through 16. Correspondingly, no, wrong, wrong pass. Uh, and you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he shall bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, and shall be put to death. Now God tells Moses to tell the people that if you curse God you'll be responsible for your sin. Uh, Egyptian foreigner here was proved, notice it, proved to be a blasphemer. They laid hands on him. They bore witness of this. And he was used as an example of the seriousness of crimes against God. Now certainly if God requires a foreigner to be executed for that, what did he want for his own people? The people of the nation of Israel here, he was trying to drive a, le drive a lesson home here that he would be no less tolerant of, the, of a national Israelite who identified himself as God's people who used God's name in vain. It's, it's an interesting study of stuff that goes on with this. Sometime later, the Jewish people began to create new traditions of this. And they took a lot of care not to blaspheme the name of God. This really set in their mind what God thought about this. Now the problem with it is the nation grew more desirous of duty versus delight. So now it became a way more of a fear than of worship of how they handled the name of God. Interesting enough, they began to avoid even saying the name of God. Because if anyone would ever say it, maybe they would say it wrong. And then they started not even writing it, because if you could say it wrong, maybe you would write it wrong. And so they never wanted to blaspheme the name, and so they just never used it. Some accounts I read said that only the Jewish high priest could pronounce the holy name of Yahweh. 
But he, was only an area, he could only announce it on the Day of Atonement. He could only use that name then. Further tradition tells us that the proper pronunciation of Yahweh would be passed down only from the high priest to his successor on his deathbed with his last breath. Now, this would create a, a problem. If you've ever been with somebody who's dying and you're trying to hear what they have to say, it may not come out right. And pretty soon we begin to get all kinds of pronunciations of Yahweh. So a confusion began to amount into what was the exact pronunciation of these four letters. We would say Y-H-W-H, right? Of the covenant God of Israel. Well, these four letters got pronounced in different ways through the years. And they took the removal of the vowels and gave other names, and some came up with Jehovah, um, others came up with other names. Adam Clark wrote a commentary on Leviticus back in 1830, and I've been reading some of his stuff. He said this, the Jews never pronounced his name, so as long as it been disused, it's old English here, among them, that the true pronunciation was totally lost. And many people believe that because of their fear that they would do something wrong with it instead of being a worshiper of God. But furthermore, many devout Jewish leaders would not even write the name of God. And the reason they didn't do that, as I read on this, is they thought, if I wrote the name of God on a piece of paper and that piece of paper got destroyed, then I would be blaspheming the name of God. And so they wouldn't even write the name now down on the paper. You see where just legalism just dominates people's lives. To avoid this, they began to use some of the vowels and come up with other names, Adoniah, which means Lord, um, trying to get around this. And if they had to write the name down in some way, they would only write first and last letters, uh, trying not to be uh, charged with blaspheme in any way. Now remember that <laughs> both Jesus and Stephen were stoned for blasphemy, weren't they? Remember Jesus said, for which of my good works do you stone me or do you try to kill me? They said, for none of them, because you blaspheme, making yourself out to be God. Stephen, in his great sermon in, in Acts 7, I read it again today just to refresh myself. He uses the name of God constantly in that sermon. In fact, he charges them with the Lord Jesus' death by the name of God. And the Bible says in verse 57 of Acts 7 that they, they, they cried out with a loud voice and they covered their ears. They didn't want to hear that name of God used against them and they rushed at him with one accord and killed him. Jesus was being tried. Pilate came out and said, look, I find nothing in this man. This man is innocent. And they cried out all the more, crucify him because he blasphemes the name of God making himself out to be a king. And finally, they said, the only king we have is Caesar. See, they had lost, it seems like very early on, the meaning of the Lord's name and why it is to be held in honor and glory. And, it, and the name of God should bring his true people to their knees and to, a, to an awe and to, to a reverential fear of him, not, not a fear to write it on a piece of paper or to speak it. In fact, we pray using often our Heavenly Father and in the name of Jesus, we, Christians are unashamed to use the name of God. In fact, we boldly speak it, and we should. Third thought, and I'm going to hurry here a little bit. The punishment for human murder 
and for unlawfully killing an animal. Look at verses 17 with me and following. I'll just take on one verse at a time here. If a man takes the life of another human being, he shall surely be put to death. Well, now he turns to some other laws coming off of this. Um, they've just were given the, the law of how this foreigner was to be handled. He was to be stoned to death. Now he reassures the nation and reestablishes the death penalty here. And the context is this Egyptian blasphemer. But, but basically, when you read verse 17, don't you just see the crime, crime must be punished? I mean, that's pretty clear in there, right? And then the punishment should fit the crime. It's very clear and very simple. In fact, it was practiced for a long time in this nation. Not anymore. One of the greatest ministries of both the law in the Old Testament and even today is that the wages of sin is death. And this is what God is teaching the nation. Sin always carries very heavy consequences. If sin doesn't carry the death penalty, think about this. You don't need a Savior. See, you can get around it. You can do time or pay something back or do something. But if sin... If the wages of sin is not death, we don't need Jesus. He is setting that all up, isn't he? He's, he's using this to foreshadow the coming of the king who can, who can pardon people from the death penalty. And so he establishes this law, doesn't he? And the reality is that our personal sin demands the death penalty, doesn't it? I mean, it's pretty awesome to think about. Every one of us deserve the death penalty. Wages have to be paid. You have a just and holy God, right? He doesn't just pardon people without a payment. He's just and holy. He doesn't turn the, uh, turn the head and look away. He doesn't fix the books. He doesn't do any of those things. The wages have to be paid for. See, this makes the gospel so beautiful to us, doesn't it? That's us in, in Leviticus 24. We're, we are the people waiting on the mind of the Lord for judgment. It's really us in a lot of ways. But the gospel is beautiful, right? It's in this same law that, that Moses is giving here from God not only shows the wages of sin is death, but the same law is a foreshadowing of a Savior, a final lamb, who takes the place of those who are on death row. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? See, that's what the law does. It's a foreshadowing of the pardoning of all of us who are on death row. And it's reminded over and over. And yet, God's left man with a law to help him in society. We look at this and we realize that if society would just adhere to the things that God has given, there would be so much more pleasantness in this life. So much crime is repeated by those who got out, right? And those, you know, we see it all the time. And so there's, 
God is kind to man. He, we live in this fallen world with corruption and lies and deceit and murder and all that. So God gave man even a law that could help them in their society. Now, the, the greater shadow was coming of Jesus Christ to remove us from the death row. But, but even, in, even in that law, we have a way that we could have such a better life in this fallen world. But man rejects it. And he doesn't apply it. And so we have corruption and chaos and now we don't have police departments. And, I mean, it's just crazy, some of the stuff that's going on. Look at verse 18 with me. i got to hurry. keep saying that. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. Well, if you killed your neighbor, there's a cow, <laughs> on purpose or an accident, you may, had to make restitution. God, God was showing the value and dignity of life, whether it was animal or person. God is the giver of life, and he's showing the dignity of it here. But notice there is such a clear distinction between killing an animal and murdering a person. Now, we've lost that today, too. You kill the baby seal, you're never going to see daylight again. You murder millions of babies... You might win an election. I mean, think about how far we've got away from clear instruction here. So the person who wrongly kills the animal is not executed. He, yeah, maybe he did what was wrong, but there he's to make this financially good, right? Make this right, either by finances or with another animal. And so there's no question how God views the difference between human life and animal life. One day, one night, Gene and I are coming home from the sale, driving an old pickup, one-ton pickup, flatbed on it, trailer behind it, tons of cows in there, probably 20,000 pounds behind us. We're just talking about how grateful we were for this older pickup. It was running well. God was sustaining it. Went around the corners midnight, hit a black cow in the middle of the road. Destroyed the truck. Uh, uh, I think the words barely got out of my mouth. I go, this truck's okay, hon. We're going to make it. <laughs> Well, in Modoc County in California, the northeastern corner up there, it's called open range. So if you kill somebody's cow, you are responsible for it. But guess what the law has done? There's been so many lawsuits by insurance companies and other people that you really don't have to pay for it anymore. But I knew this principle. And I knew who owned that cow. It was owned by a company called Feather River Cattle Company. And so I had ridden for that company many times. And the next day, I went and found him. And I said, well, I need to borrow your backhoe. He goes, why? I go, because I ran over your cows over last night and it's laying out on the side of the freeway. And now I need to pay you for it. He goes, ah, nobody pays for that stuff anymore. I said, well, I am. He said, I'm not going to take your money, Scott. And I said, let me ride for you. And I mean, I literally had to push him. And he said, okay. I rode for him for a week to pay back the cow because it was open range. It was his. It was part of his income. And I wanted to make sure I cared for that. I think that's a biblical principle. Look at verses 19 through 22 before I get too many cowboy stories going here. If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for teeth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Um, thus, the man who kills the animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. Therefore, there, excuse me, there shall be one standard for you, and it shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. 
Well, these verses instruct the fundamental principle that punishment should be measured out according to the offense, right? And verse 22 leaves no doubt that the Israelites were not given a, an unfair advantage. It was for the foreigner and forever, for whoever. And so I, I just wrote in my notes, says, look, right is right no matter what race, what economic status, what political position, what family association or anything else. Right is right. And that's the way God has set up this law for this nation so that they could live with one another, not destroy one another. And I think that's such an important thought as we think through these things and where our nation is today. However, I don't think the law meant that, and you might want to argue on, with me on this one, that the guy who got his eye put out could now go and you know, put his foot on the throat of another guy and take his eye out. Um, uh, maybe it was, but there's nothing in the Bible where we ever see that done. And I, and I believe what the law of Moses was establishing was a very heavy financial restitution system that allowed an injured person, this injured person, to recoup what they would have lost from this injury. Uh, we see this today in our legal system, but it's greatly abused um, by lawyers and everybody else. Uh, uh, but I think that's how it was handled. Now, I know in some, some Eastern world that there, there are some of this that goes on, but we don't really find that in the New Testament. I think it's given to show the, the gravity of what you've done to a person. And there should be sorrow there and everything possible to help reestablish that person and see them through their losses there. I think what I enjoyed about this instruction as I studied it is that it exposes the nature of man in a lot of ways, right? And the nature of God. See, man, when he deals with these things, he's either far too tolerant, well, just let out all the murderers. <laughs> or he's too excessive. He doesn't know how to be God who is holy and perfect and gracious and merciful and how he hands out perfectly what man needs. I came away from this just realizing that man just abuses and cheats. God has the right answer for everything. I don't have time to go to it, but Matthew chapter 5, 38 through the end of it, just gives such a great understanding of, of how, how he deals with Jesus in the great Sermon on the Mount there, how he, how he gives instruction how to deal with one another. Finally, i got to quit with this, though, for the last verse. The law drives us to a worshipful gratitude of our Savior. Verses 23 here, the final one. Then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and stoned him with stones. And thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Once again, the narrative kind of picks up on this very last verse, drops back into this text. And we're told that, that they do exactly what God told them to do. I kind of thought about Moses today. I thought, I wonder how he felt about that. I wonder what it's like to throw the first stone. Hmm. Clearly, the law was not given to Israel to just mere guidelines, right? Well, yeah, I think about taking him outside camp, and if you get around to it, you should put him to death, but let him hang around for 40 years. <laughs> These were not guidelines. They were commands of how to help this community stay in fellowship with a holy God. These commands were to be obeyed. 
And even though it were difficult, I, I can't imagine myself in our Western world doing this. But that's what they were supposed to do. And the Bible says they did it. Now, I wish they would have done this when they came to the land of the promised land of Canaan instead of believing the ten spies. There's, there's times they do such things right and such times they do such things wrong, but that's us as well, right? Adam Clark, again, in his old commentary said this, the Jews themselves tell us that their manner of stoning was this. He pulls us out from Jewish recordings. They brought the condemned person without the camp, old English here, because his crime had rendered him unclean, and whatever was unclean must be put outside the camp. When he had come within four cubics of the place of execution, they stripped the criminal. If a man, leaving him nothing but a cloth around his waist, the place which he was to be executed was elevated, and the witnesses went up to him and laid their hands upon his head for the purposes mentioned in verse 14. Then one of the witnesses struck him with a stone upon the loin, and if it did not kill him with that blow, two witnesses with all their strength would rise a great stone and crush his chest. This was the coupe de grace, the finish of the tragedy. Then he went on to say that the rest of the nation would bury him in stones. God's a holy God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life through who? Through Jesus Christ. So the law is meant to help us see the weight and gravity of sin and that without it, we are eternally condemned. We're never coming off that death row if Jesus Christ does not save us. And so let me ask you this in closing. Does the law drive you to be a worshipful, grateful lover of Jesus Christ? See, that's why Paul said the law is good if handled right. That's what it does. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain, publicly or privately? Have you ever had some kind of idol physically or in your heart before God? Probably we're all toast, huh? Let's go out to the place. Let's get some rocks. Paul never forgot who he was, right? Chief of sinners, he called himself. We once were dead in our sins. He, he never forgets where God brought him from so he can bring the ultimate praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so saved sinners are still amazed at grace, aren't we? And here we read this Old Testament passage, this law a difficult situation here, and we come away going, oh, thank you, Jesus. I was on death row, and you pardoned me. What an amazing thing, huh? Amen. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for a church that works hard to understand biblical theology. We thank you for even the nation of Israel, this example that was put in front of us, Lord. And how you gave laws that are really good for all men of all time. When we adhere to these things, Lord, there is a decent society to live in. But Lord, the greater lesson is we're all sinners. We all deserve to be taken outside the camp. And we all deserve the stone of death. 
But we thank you that our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our God and Savior, came, fulfilled the law, became the final lamb, died in our place, was our substitution, propitiated the wrath of God so that we would no longer carry that sentence of death. This is the mind of the Lord. To pardon his children through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be encouraged by this truth. May we live according to it. Lord, let us not leave this room and live the same way we came in. May this have changed us more to be like your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.